Record-setting heat waves and raging wildfires have ravaged parts of the U.S. the past few weeks, leading scientists and, well, everyone really, to consider the causes and potential solutions for these unprecedented events and their effects on our ecosystem. Dr. Alexandra Ponet-Gonzalez has been mulling these kinds of quandaries for years in her examination of human-atmosphere-biosphere interactions, including the effects of global environmental change on atmospheric deposition, which consists of materials that enter ecosystems from the atmosphere, as well as terrestrial ecosystems spanning tropical forests to urban areas. An associate professor in UNT's Department of Geography and the Environment, Ponette Gonzalez's research falls under the realm of biophysical geography. So what that means is I'm interested in how and why different features on the surface of the earth, in particular things like urban trees and forests, um, vary across the surface of the earth and how different processes like land transformation, when people change the way they use the land, or processes like atmospheric pollution um, affect the natural features that we have on the landscape and the services they provide. Ponette Gonzalez has worked on numerous research projects, including investigating the use of trees as natural urban air filters, the influence of drought-induced dust on nutrient and pollutant inputs to ecosystems in Texas, and the accumulation of black carbon on bird feathers. On this episode of UNT Pod, join me, Erin Cristalis, as I speak with Dr. Ponette Gonzalez, who was recently selected to serve on the Environmental Protection Agency's Clean Air Scientific Advisory Committee about these fascinating projects and the many others she's undertaken. How did you first become interested in biophysical geography and more more specifically, human-atmosphere-biosphere interactions? Well, I guess I'll start by saying that in geography, we have two general branches, just physical geography and human geography. And physical geography is um, the study of the surface of the earth and those features and patterns that I was talking about. When I say I'm a biophysical geographer, it's because I'm interested in living things specifically, like I'm interested in the plants and the forests and the cover. Um, and I became interested in biophysical geography as a master's student. So I actually have an undergraduate degree in psychology. And when I finished, I realized I had an interest in environment and conservation. So I decided to get a master's degree several years later and decided to pursue geography because I was told by a a mentor who was a geographer that it was an interdisciplinary field where I would be welcomed with my background. So I went to UT and I decided to pursue master's research on an indigenous group in Northeastern Mexico and how they manage their coffee plantations. And it happened to be the one of the biggest coffee crises ever, like prices were really low. And my really simple question was, why are they you know, maintaining this coffee farm if coffee prices are low? So simple question, but I went there and what I, what I discovered very quickly is that they were subsistence farmers. So within this coffee forest really is what it was, there were all sorts of fruits and foods and herbs that they could rely on, even if their cash crop coffee was not doing well. Um, They had little patches of areas for a couple of animals. They had timber resources. So cutting down the forest because prices were low would make no sense within this indigenous subsistence community. And so I was really excited to do that research, but 
while I was living there over the summer, I realized I was just fascinated by the trees. And I wanted to know more about the plants. And I wanted to know more about how different this coffee forest that was very traditional, um, maybe more better said, uh, very indigenous, right? Managed by an indigenous group, how that might differ from just a forest that was untouched by humans or less touched by humans. And so that was what inspired me to move more into the realm of ecology and physical geography. So I moved away from wanting to work with people and how they manage the land and more towards, well, how does this forest actually work? Um, at that time, which is really super interesting, there was this huge discussion about coffee forests in Latin America and how they harbored a huge amount of biodiversity. In some cases, depending on the management level and management style, in some cases, people were finding that diversity was on par with what you would see in a, in a tropical rainforest that was not being managed by humans. And so I was interested um, in the forest, but not so much from the perspective of species diversity, more from the perspective of, well, how does this work? Does a, does a coffee forest, because literally it looks like a forest, it's just that underneath you have coffee bushes, does this forest cycle water the same way that a, an unmanaged forest does? Does it cycle nutrients the same way that an unmanaged forest does? And what I was trying to get at was kind of like, is this a stand-in ecosystem? Could we have these ecosystems covering large areas serving the same functions? and purposes that that forests do. So that, that's what led me to my PhD. And, and I basically compared forests, coffee forests or plantations, more forests than plantations and, and cattle pastures. And I was interested in, and um, I was actually looking at their ability to capture fog during the dry season, not only the water from that fog, but the nutrients in that fog um, from the atmosphere. And so at that point, I realized, wow, I'm really interested in people and how they manage the landscape, the atmosphere and the things that it delivers to ecosystems like water and nutrients and pollutants, and then the ecosystem itself, and not only how that ecosystem facilitates those processes, but also how they're affected by those processes. So one day I just kind of said, that's it. I do human atmosphere biosphere interaction. All those things come together under that word. Well, I'm curious, do you find that you still use your psychology background when you're exploring your, you know, biophysical geography research? That's a really good question. And I would say that my psychology background has actually come more into play that I can identify at this point in my teaching and in my mentoring and how, uh, how it has helped me sort of think about engaging with people, managing people. I have a lot of tools. I'm still learning how to use them, but I am aware of those tools. And I'm aware of a lot of the, the, like opportunities and challenges with interactions with human beings. So yeah, I do think about psychology a lot, um, but more on the management side of like managing people and working with teams and working collaborations. Uh, maybe, maybe now a little more too on sort of the psychology of how we value nature. I think about that 
why people value it in some places and don't in others and how we can maybe change that mindset. So yeah, that's a really good question. You talked a lot about how you got into your current research um, a moment ago, and your research has examined urban trees, including post oaks and live oaks, as natural air filters that are able to capture and remove black carbon from the atmosphere. And you actually conducted that research here in Denton. Um, can you talk about how you were first inspired to examine that particular phenomenon and what your findings illuminated about how trees can be beneficial as urban air filters, including locally? Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that you asked me a little bit about my history, because if you know about coffee, you know that it grows in the tropics. So prior to coming to UNT, all of my research was actually looking at the impact of urban air pollution or looking at atmosphere biosphere interactions in tropical forest environments. And so I knew from this work on fog and rain that I was talking about a little bit earlier that trees and forests intercept gases like ozone, right? They intercept those gases, take up those gases and particles like soot or dust from the atmosphere. And I knew from my research and there's a long line of research on this that trees are really good filters for gases and particles because they're tall, they're rough and uneven, and they have a really large surface area. So they have a lot of area for interception to happen. And so on the one hand, if you're in a polluted environment and trees are intercepting a lot of gases and particles, then trees and forests can be vulnerable to air pollution, right? That's one thing that can happen. But on the other hand, I kind of started to ask my, my, myself the question, well, let's flip it on its head. Um, does this also mean that trees and forests in an urban context can mitigate air pollution by intercepting it and filtering out it out? So we do have to kind of take stock of the fact that when trees and forests are filtering the air, that can have both positive outcomes and it can also have negative outcomes depending on how polluted that environment is and where things go and how sensitive that ecosystem is. So nothing is ever necessarily all good or all bad when it comes to particle filtration, if that makes sense. Um, so I guess in this research, I wanted to sort of shift my perspective and say, well, rather than looking at tropical forests around cities that are being impacted by urban air pollution, I wanna think about trees and urban areas and what they can do to mitigate air pollution. The main question was, well, can trees serve as urban air filters? And the follow-up question to that is, well, if they are really good at um, filtering particles or pollution out of the air, then where should we plant them? And where should we conserve them? This is the logical follow-up question, which becomes an urban planning and design question. You know, I always like to give credit to my mentors and one in particular, who's both a, a close friend, a colleague, a mentor, her name is Kathy Weathers. She's at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies, and I was pitching to her my idea about urban trees and air pollution mitigation. And she said, that sounds great. Have you thought about black carbon? And I hadn't worked with black carbon um, until that point. For listeners who don't know what black carbon is, um, it's commonly referred to as soot. And so I decided, well, you know, what, what else do we know about black carbon in urban areas? Well, we know that it is a product of incomplete combustion of fossil fuel. Um, you have black carbon that's emitted from fires. And we know that it's really bad for human health. Like it degrades air quality. It's bad for human health. Tons of studies on that. 
Um, we know that it's a major contributor to climate warming. It's actually second after CO2. And compared to CO2, we know very little about black carbon in the urban environment. There's still a lot more that we need to know. So I decided, you know, why don't we go ahead and look at this particular pollutant specifically, let's look at trees and their ability to filter out black carbon from the atmosphere. We have some pretty important findings which show that yes, <laughs> trees are really good urban air filters. Um, post oak and live oak, which is what we looked at uh, here in Denton because they're, they're widely planted. Uh, they grow across the, post oak is the dominant tree species in the area. We found that they're really good um, filters for air pollution. They collect a lot of black carbon, which means that when they do that, they're removing it from the atmosphere so you and I don't breathe it in. Um, but a couple sort of take home messages from this research is that the species matters. So post oak trees capture a lot more black carbon particles than live oak trees. We haven't done the research. We don't know why. There's a lot of, there's a million reasons why that could be. But you know, some species are more efficient, so to speak, than others. And the other thing that that I've had people say then, well, then should we cut down the live oaks? And I said, no, 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 <laughs> we don't want to cut down the live oaks just because they're not as efficient doesn't mean we want to get rid of them. Because what live oaks have is that they grow, you know, they have leaves on through the winter season, which post oaks don't. And so they're continuously collecting material. And it just so happens that fall and winter is when black carbon in the air, soot in the air is at its highest concentrations. So we're saying, let's leave these evergreen species on the landscape because they're still filtering material. They may not be as efficient, but they're still filtering that material out. Well, I know you mentioned that, you know, trees as urban air filters and how to use them has become an important question in urban planning. And I'm wondering if you've found that there are any urban areas that are doing a particularly good job of using trees and their urban planning as a way to filter, or is that something that hasn't really happened yet? So there, so that's a really good question because there are a lot of cities that are thinking about planning for urban forests and urban trees. And I think that I would say that a lot of those plans think about the services that trees provide broadly speaking sort of like an umbrella of they're good for shade, people like them, they intercept you know, heavy rain, they collect air pollution. Um, I think that there are you know, some cities that you, know, we, that you would probably think of off the bat like Portland that has a lot of tree cover, um, but I don't know if people are specifically targeting air pollution removal like at the scale of the city or within the city. I think a lot of, I think, and I haven't done research on this. This is kind of where we're going right now with our research, but I think a lot of cities are just thinking about the umbrella of benefits that trees provide. So I cannot tell you, like if I was gonna use, in terms of percentages of canopy cover, I think the average across the US is like, 30, on average urban areas have 30% canopy cover but I can't tell you just like off the top of my head who's really high on that list and who's really low, except I believe Atlanta and Portland are up there. And I think that we're, we're sort of playing catch up uh, here in Dallas-Fort Worth. But that's a really good question because that's kind of where we're headed is like, we step back from Denton and we look at the entire US, what are these different cities doing and how, and how are they doing at it? Well, that's exciting. And you know, I'm wondering too, 
do you feel like part of your job as a researcher is also to be an advocate? Because, you know, I'm wondering, is, it, is this something that you're sharing? Like, hey, you know, we found all this information and, and this could be really beneficial for urban areas. You're putting me on the spot and I'll tell you why. Because I feel like my role in advocacy is a little bit limited. Um, I really am excited about doing research that I think will inform how people think about the urban forest, for example, and then sharing that information. But I, maybe advocacy and activism are two different things. I would, you know, I'm not involved, very involved in a lot of the community organizations um, because I spend so much time on the ground trying to collect the data. And one person said to me, and I agree with this, him 100%, is that you need that data sometimes to convince people Right. And so I really see myself as sort of boots on the ground trying to get the data to convince people this is real. And so I'm definitely all about sort of putting that that data out there. So and and I love giving talks to community groups and neighborhoods about the work that we're doing. So I guess I am an advocate. Maybe I was just thinking, am I an activist? <laughs> I don't know if I'm an activist, but um, but I really admire people who are. <laughs> You also were involved in an interdisciplinary collaboration with UNT's College of Visual Arts and Design that focused on the amount of soot that externally accumulates on bird feathers. Can you discuss how that project came about and what it exposed about soot accumulation, particularly as the research was conducted near I-35? This is a super cool project, and I have to first just name the collaborators on this project. So. Um, we worked with Matthew Fry in Geography and the Environment, Jeff Johnson, uh, who was formerly in the Department of Biological Sciences, and Jordan Authority from the College of Visual Arts and Design, very prominent artist and a wonderful person. And the four of us got together, uh, Matt applied for a mentoring grant. The Office of Faculty Success has this amazing mentoring grant program where faculty can get together to do a, a variety of things, but one of those can be to kind of think about new research lines. And so we got together with that um, small pool of money to start thinking about air. And the name of our working group was, I believe it was air rights, materiality, space. I, all those words were in the title and we were just really interested in air, broadly speaking. We spent about a year um, just reading and talking. And then after that, this project emerged with the soot on the feathers that was really a dual art science uh, research project where, you know, Jordanth was, was doing art and we were doing science and we were kind of bringing them together around the same theme of soot accumulation on feathers. And so it actually ended up being like a two to three year project because it took so long for everything to sort of pan out. Um, but it, it I, I think the the crux of, or there was a sort of a critical moment when in one of our working groups, you know, when we came up with the idea of soot on feathers, Dorneth said, we really need to think about something that we're all interested in that we can sort of bring together for our project idea. And she's very interested in, in imaging. And I was interested, I said, you know, I'm really big on soot right now. This is something that I'm focused on. And, you know, Matt was thinking about, um, territoriality and air and then Jeff thinks about birds and so we're like can we put these ideas together and we did and I think the really neat part about this project I mean there were so many interesting angles to this but 
when you asked me what it exposed from the science side, what it confirmed is, okay, major highways are a, a huge source of soot to the atmosphere. So if you put feathers, you know, if you hang up feathers, which we did, we put them on a frame and we put them by the highway and then put some over by the bus stop on campus. Well, we had a lot of soot on the feathers near the highway. And so, well, we know that. We know that big, big highways are a major source of pollution. I think the really interesting part wasn't so much that, it was more that there was an eightfold difference between the two sites that are only separated by a mile. And so if we just take this finding as the soot on the feathers is in some way representative of the amount of soot in the atmosphere, like if it were monitoring soot in the atmosphere, and then you think about us as humans and all the animals on the landscape and all the plants that are exposed to that atmosphere, over really short dis distances, your exposure to pollution can change dramatically. That is what I think is super interesting. I don't think that we realize when we're walking down the street that from one block to the next, we can experience a completely different local atmosphere. Well, and the project was on display in the Environmental Sciences Building, is that right? Yes, uh-huh. I'm wondering if you were able to hear any of the public's reaction for people who were not involved in the project, who knew nothing about the project, who came in and kind of got to see the results of, of what you found. So that's where Dornick's art is just amazing. Um, not only is it just captivating and beautiful, but you see it, you know, you see you see, you visualize, you internalize. I mean, it's like a whole nother level of understanding. Oh my gosh, there's all this, there's all this stuff in the atmosphere and like our, where, where we interact with that and how we interact with that. And so what I heard a lot of people saying was, I had no idea. I never even thought about that. And I never, you know, I didn't, yeah, I look out in the air and it's just, there's nothing there, you know, for example, or I didn't think that when a bird flies through the atmosphere, it's collecting pollution on its feathers or, oh my gosh, we're breathing in the same air that those birds are breathing in. You know, a, a lot of comments like that, sort of that moment of the aha moment of bringing it home in a way that could, people could can understand it, sure, with data and scientifically, but I think the art is a really, uh, it's a much more deeper sort of experience. The more you know about pollution and air pollution, the, the harder it becomes to unknow the reality of it. You, yeah. become pretty, you become pretty aware, you know, of what's around you and, and where you're walking and is there a car, is it idling, is there a bus stop? You know, I think about that stuff, whereas I didn't think about it so much before. We're putting out a paper now that shows location relative to emission source uh, is, you know, and, and we know this from other work as well, is very important in driving not only how much is in the atmosphere, but, you know, how much is on the leaves of, of trees. And one recommendation that, you know, I've seen is if you can change your routes, your walking routes, your biking routes, and your running routes to avoid pollution sources and hotspots like intersections, major roads, then do it. So currently you're looking at how water droplets that drip from leaves contain diverse communities of organisms, such as bacteria and fungi, as well as non-living materials such as dust, soot, and radioactive material. 
And in fact, your research, and it's in collaboration with scientists from Georgia Southern University and the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies, was recently published in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and Environment. What roles, good or bad, do these particulates play in how ecosystems work and how can they potentially affect our economy and society? So this is really a concepts and questions paper where we're trying to draw attention to all the things that are in water that, um, that sometimes don't get looked at. So uh, I'll step back and say that this really builds on all the work that I've been doing for a very long time, except that in the past, I looked at things that were dissolved in water. That means they pass through a filter with a certain pore size. Really, it's just about how big that pore size is. And with soot, I started to think about the things that aren't dissolved in water, the particles like the dust and the bacteria and the viruses and all that kind of good stuff. And it's something that traditionally uh, people who study like river systems and aquatic systems, they think about particles all the time. But people who think about rainwater, we, we tend to filter out the particles like you do with your coffee. You know, you put, you put it through a filter, you collect the particles and you throw out the particles. We kind of do the same thing with rainwater. So we collect the rainwater, we filter it, and we discard the filters. And aquatic scientists would never do that. <laughs> There's a lot of information there, right? That stuff is still entering the ecosystem with rain. And so we're kind of calling attention to, well, what's, all, what's on those filters? Well, the soot's on those filters because as we've been talking about, the soot accumulates on the leaves. Well, guess what? When it rains, the rain washes off those leaves and those soot particles fall to the soil or to the forest floor or to the ground. And so we're calling attention, like I said, to the fact that there's a lot of stuff in that rain, good and bad, right? That's moving through ecosystems that we have to take stock of, that we have to account for. I think it was interesting for people to stop and think, well, what's in that rain? Kind of like with the air, you look out and you're like, I don't really see it, it's not so bad. You look at the rain and you just think water. You know, you don't think about everything that's in that water. And so, you know, when we think about um, rain or fog or snow or sleet or any form of precipitation, there's all sorts of stuff in that precipitation. And so in terms of the particles, those particles are important. There are goods and bads for ecosystems. So for example, um, one really important thing is that rainwater can deliver particles that have a lot of nutrients in them, like nitrogen and phosphorus that ecosystems need, right? That ecosystems need to grow <laughs> and you know to take up carbon and to be healthy. And so, you know, those particles per are our direct source of nutrients. My favorite example is the Amazon. There's a ton of Saharan dust that gets transported from Africa to the Amazon, and it gets delivered to the Amazon forest, both as particles and also in rainwater. And there's a ton of phosphorus in those particles. And those particles, or that phosphorus, basically subsidizes the growth of the Amazon forest because the Amazon forest uh, doesn't have a lot of available phosphorus. So it's a, kind of an example of how like a nutrient can move from one part of the world to another part of the world, get rained out, and then fertilize this part of the world. My colleague, John Van Stan, who really focused on the part of delivering life to ecosystems, you know, the the rainwater contains a lot of bacteria and fungi, like you said, that, that um, these are the organisms that make up the bulk of the organisms that actually do decomposition in the soil. And so when we have decomp decomposing material, uh, what happens 
We release nutrients back into the soil so that plants can continue to grow. We release carbon to the atmosphere through the natural process of microbes breathing carbon back out. So something as simple as bacteria and fungi landing on the soil, facilitating decomposition, is all wrapped up in the nutrient cycles of soils and the carbon cycle, if that makes sense. Um, there are some bads, right? There's been a lot of recent work, including by a colleague of mine, Janice Brainy, whose work is amazing, um, looking at rainwater delivering microplastics to ecosystems and watersheds. You know, it's raining plastic. It's not that the old one was acid rain, now it's plastic rain, right? So that's a bad, right? Rainwater can deliver microplastics and get stored in soils and move on to, you know, into our water sources. Another example, um, a lot of pathogens are dispersed by rain. So you have rain splashing on leaves and the pathogens are dispersing. And I just read a paper, a lot of people think about this in, in agriculture because pathogens like, I believe it's the wheat rust that are very damaging to major agricultural crops. They're dispersed by rainwater. And so there's a lot of things going on with rain and what's inside of rain that, that uh, it's really, it's super fascinating. It's really interesting and I think a lot of different people are thinking about different components and we kind of wanted to bring it all together and say like call for action. <laughs> we need to know more about this. <laughs> and I mean, it sounds like your current project too has, has built a lot on your previous projects. Is it ever hard to let go of one of those previous projects and move on to the next thing? Like what kind of goes through your mind when it's time to, to start something new? No, it's not hard to move on. <laughs> in fact, even though I work in a specific area or a specific field, if you look at my work, you'll see that I've worked in a lot of different places on a lot of different things. So all related, but I really enjoy the challenge of learning new things and, and, and trying on new things. So right now our, our big new project is on wildfire no surprise there, a lot of people are interested in wildfire right now. But surprisingly, like very surprisingly, there's a lot we don't know about what comes back down to the surface and rain after a wildfire. So one thing, like, I don't know if you saw the images of Colorado this last wildfire season where the, the sky was orange. And then I believe right after these crazy fires, there was this incredible snow event that everybody was talking about. Well, all of that stuff came out of the atmosphere with that snow. <laughs> and that's a lot of material that's going up into the atmosphere and then coming back down. And so right now, that's one of the things that we're super interested in. So again, it relates to the atmosphere, delivering things to the biosphere and how plants and ecosystems respond. But it's a completely new context for me because I don't know anything about wildfire. I haven't spent my career studying wildfire. So I'm learning a whole new area, even though the process that I'm interested in re remains the same. That's kind of like the soot work. It was a new context with, you know, a vein of questions that those questions are, they're there, but every time you switch to a new context, you learn new materials, you learn new environments, you learn new drivers. Yeah, it's really, I love new projects. It's fascinating. So is your wildfire research focused on Colorado? Is it focused more here in Texas or is there a specific geographic location? Yeah, actually it's the Western US right now because we have a pilot project that's funded by the uh, research office here at UNT. 
and we could, we were able to collect um, a very small amount of samples during the historic 2020 wildfire season. Um, and we're looking at those samples now to see what they have in them. And the idea is to work across the entire US um, to really think about you know, wildfires at the continental scale and, and what, uh, there's a lot of people, for example, that look at what gets emitted from wildfires. I'm sure you've seen a lot of news on air pollution following wildfires, but again, not so much on what comes back down afterwards. You know, where does it go? Where does it rain out? Where does it snow out? What is it delivering to the ecosystem? Where does that go? How does that influence, you know, the growth, health, productivity of an ecosystem? So that's kind of where we're going right now. What impact do you hope your research ultimately has, not just in the field of biophysical geography, but also in the larger approach to finding natural ways to manage critical societal issues such as air pollution in our urban centers? This is a, this is a really, really good question, Erin. This is a hard question. This is the big picture question. This is the why we should care question. <laughs> and I think I think that the first thing that came to my mind when you were asking is awareness. Like I want people to have a more solid understanding of the atmosphere and the air that we breathe. Um, I, I think COVID really changed people's ideas about the atmosphere and about air. The fact that you know you could get sick by breathing in someone's air totally changed people's perception of, you may not see it, but there's something there. And so that kind of awareness about the importance of the atmosphere and the air that we breathe is something that, um, you know, that stuff goes up, that stuff comes back down in rain, that it's super diverse, you know, that it's a whole major component of our earth system. That's like really important to me. Um, another thing that I, I want to sort of communicate with my research is that geography really matters. Things vary a lot over space and time and it depends on like what scale you're looking at. So I was, as I was saying, you know, within a city, it can, you know, things can vary from block to block in terms of air pollution. Um, but, you know, as we zoom out, there are you know, different patterns that we see. So sort of getting an understanding of how heterogeneous our space is. That's something that geographers think a lot about. Um, in terms of like planning and policy and sort of solutions to big problems, I think there's two things. One, we need to be like creative. And I think we need to be thinking about developing multi-pronged solutions to problems like urban air pollution or heat, extreme heat or disasters or flash flooding, all of these things. I've had people sort of challenge me and say, well, urban trees are great, but we just need to all drive electric vehicles, right? We just need to stop polluting. And I'm like, we do, absolutely. Let's cut those emissions. But I don't think that that negates the, the use and the value of trees as part of the broader solution, right? So I'm, I'm not so um, focused on one prong solutions because it's kind of like a, a monocrop, <laughs> it can get wiped out. So the day that people decided that cutting emissions is not important and we've been through that, then you know, we have to have other, other tools in our toolkit for thinking about um, problems, environmental problems. And then the other thing that I think is like really, really important that people don't realize, and I think some of these connections started to sort of emerge with COVID is that 
these problems, critical societal issues like air pollution are connected to all the other problems, right? So, so we found out that people who are you know, sensitive communities that are more exposed to air pollution had higher rates of COVID infection, right? So those two things are health, air pollution. Um, air pollution is related to heat, right? So if we have more trees that capture pollution, they also provide shade. They also provide cooling. So there, all of these issues like health and air and water <laughs> and trees, they're all related. And again, um, I just don't think people realize how related those issues are. Or now, you know, a lot of people are talking about equity and justice. You know, some people are more affected by these problems than others. And it's not just that they're affected by air pollution in certain communities, they're also affected by, you know, those air pollution issues create economic issues because you have to stay inside or, if, you know, lack of trees, for example, might create a bigger heat problem. And so you have to use more AC to keep your house cool and you're an older infrastructure. I mean, it's all wrapped up together. And so I think, um, I don't know if my research can inform all of those questions, but at least bringing light to sort of some of those connections. Thank you for listening to UNT Pod. To learn more about Dr. Ponette Gonzalez and her research, please see the links in our episode notes. And don't forget to stay connected with us on Twitter and TikTok at UNT Social and on Instagram at UNT. Until next time. Be safe.